Hi, everyone. You are listening to Radio Cherry Bomb, and I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, coming to you from Rockefeller Center in the heart of New York City. I'm the founder and editor of Cherry Bomb Magazine, and each week I talk to the most interesting culinary folks around. Joining me in the studio today is Abby Belingit of the Dusky Kitchen blog and Instagram account. Abby's debut cookbook will be out tomorrow, and it's titled Mayumu, Filipino-American Desserts Remixed. This delightful book is filled with Abby's unique twists on Filipino classics, and I especially love Abby's essays about her upbringing and culinary awakenings that are sprinkled throughout. I hope you all pick up a copy of Mayumu and support Abby, because as you're about to learn, she is a unique talent. A little housekeeping. The Cherry Bomb Jubilee Conference is taking place Saturday, April 15th at Center 415 in Manhattan. Jubilee is the largest gathering of women in and around the world of food and drink, and this will be our 10th in-person Jubilee. It's also Cherry Bomb's 10th birthday. Can you believe? Jubilee Day is filled with great talks, networking, beautiful things to eat and drink, and lots of opportunities for connection, conversation, and community. Jubilee tickets are on sale right now, so visit cherrybomb.com for more or click on the link in our show notes. We would love to see you there. Also, thank you to everyone who joined us for our graduate hotel event in Tucson. I had the best time exploring the city. Next up is our stop at the graduate hotel in Palo Alto. That event is sold out. If you're coming, please say hi. Now, let's check in with today's guest. Abby Belingit, welcome to Radio Cherry Bomb. Thank you, Carrie. It is a pleasure to be here. Oh, well, it's such a pleasure for me and such an honor because tomorrow is your pub day. It's wild. I cannot believe it. It's surreal. I can imagine. It must feel very surreal because the book came together pretty quickly in mm-hmm. terms of cookbooks, which our yeah. listeners might know sometimes take years to come together. Yeah, yeah. Most of the writing and recipe development and also the cookbook shoot happened from January to May 2022. And obviously edits and stuff that takes months after the fact. We will talk all about this book in just a little bit, but I want Mm -hmm. the readers to get to know you a little Mm -hmm. bit better. I was shocked, but not shocked to learn you still have your day job. Yes, I still work full time. I work remotely. It's like a nine to five, but I am making it work. And how is your employer with your side hustle? They are so supportive, which is really like rare, I feel like, to find. I was very nervous on my performance review and I was like, are they going to ding me for also writing a cookbook (laughs) at the same time? But no, I mean, I'm really grateful to be remote because I know everyone has kind of gone into hybrid or in person fully. So it is a luxury to be able to write and rescue develop from home, but also do my job on the laptop and all that. Did you bring baked goods to your performance review? That was all on Zoom, so I cannot, unfortunately. <laughs> but I used to bring cookies to the office, so I think I get like a pass from that. <laughs> that does make you popular, but you're right. How do you do that now in a remote work situation? You grew up in the Bay Area. I did. So I was born in San Jose, and I lived there for six years. And then we moved to Stockton, which is in the Central Valley. But I really claim both because my family, my extended family at least, is really still in San Jose on my mom's side, for sure. And it sounds from the book, you have a big, beautiful extended family. Yeah. So whenever I think of family, I never just think of like my sisters and my mom and my dad. I think of my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, and they're just like everywhere, not just in California, but back in the Philippines, like across the whole country, basically, and outside. So it's a lot. There's a lot of people to love. So one of my favorite things about Mayumu is you have so many great essays in this, and they really let you combine a lot of memoir with the recipes. And you talk about your experience in high school 
Do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. So where I grew up, I'm really lucky that everyone around me was pretty diverse. And a lot of Filipinos, friends, my family friends are all like my parents' friends and all that. So it's interesting that so much of the narratives, which I think are totally valid of people growing up and scared to bring a stinky lunchbox to school was not really the case for me. And I think tides are changing for sure. I can't speak on anyone younger than me yet because my nieces and nephews are still like babies. But I really hope it's better for most people that are more excited about food than ever before and not really afraid of new and different things, I think. And so I guess I was always around Filipino food, so I never thought it was weird or other. I just thought it was like the best kind of food out there. I was wondering when I read that, did the fact that you were able to have a strong sense of self, even in high school, contribute to who you are today? Yeah, I mean, in terms of food, especially, I think my parents taught me not to be picky. If I was scared of something, there was you try it first once and then you can say if you don't like it after the fact. It's funny because like growing up, there's a really famous like Filipino dish that's called dinaguan and it's a pork blood stew. And then my parents were like, this is chocolate meat and we just call it chocolate meat. And even with those euphemisms aside, um, I still think we knew what it was and I think it still tasted so good. So I really think that kind of attitude has like carried with me to adulthood for sure. You started baking when you were 13. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? Yeah, so I was a huge avid fan of watching the Food Network. It was always on cable. I was always DVRing like my favorite shows. I still really was relying on the internet for actual recipes and actually being taught how to bake. My mom was great about like making a lot of Filipino dishes at home and also desserts, but I think that it wasn't necessarily the first thing I gravitated towards when I was 13. I was like, I want to make cupcakes. Sprinkles Cupcakes is popping off right now. In that time, it definitely was, and it still is really great. That was like my first entry point, and really going into baking blogs and finding things on the internet was amazing because like when you're 13, you have no money, and you really are just like searching things on the internet, looking for help on how to learn DIY everything, especially with the, the rise of YouTube. I'm really glad to discover that love just at an earlier age. Who were some of the folks you liked on the Food Network? Oh, okay. Yes, I loved the show Unwrapped with Mark Summers. That was randomly one of my favorite shows. And also Ted Allen had like a food detective show at some point. I mean, I still love Guy Fieri today and I was just watching it constantly. I think it's just running in a loop in my head to watch like Food Network Challenge where they made big cakes, even if it wasn't necessarily like personality making them, but everyone's creativity with like fondant at the time was so cool to me. And you started coming up with ideas for your own TV shows. When I was 13, I really thought I was going to be like a CEO of something. And I realized like I was going to pitch to Food Network that they're going to have a kids baking championship. And they already did. So I, someone already took the idea from me. So I think all my fun ideas, especially like I was super into Ace of Cakes with Duff Goldman, all those things were already cool to me. And so I guess it might table that for another dream of mine. But it was fun when I was a kid to dream. And then fast forward a few years, at the age of 17, you get your first KitchenAid mixer. Yes. And that changed a lot of things for you. Oh, my God. Yes. My mom was so nice. They, like, went to Costco. They got a very standard, like, white color, which is fine. And but it, Oh, that's so not you. I know. It's not really me. <laughs> so I think I was really happy with literally anything. It really did change the game in terms of just, I think when you're 17, your arms are also not, like, at the most strength, especially for me. I, like, wasn't working out that much. I was really grateful to have that kind of a big power tool because I think it really opened up a lot of gates for frosting, buttercream, meringue. I really was having the best time just experimenting in the kitchen with the KitchenAid mixer. 
we have to note you are wearing KitchenAid mixer earrings right now. Yes. They are turquoise blue and they match your hair. Yes, I am. And they're gifts from my boyfriend's brother and sister-in-law for Christmas. So they really know me. They really realize that I love earrings and I love baking. So I try to combine those things most of the time. We need to find out where you got those from. They got them from Etsy, for sure. So if you look up KitchenAid Stand Mixer earrings, and they have different colors, so you can customize whichever ones you want. Oh, that's genius. <laughs> what is your KitchenAid color today? It's still the white one. It's, you still have the white one? <laughs> I do. It's lasted 10 years. I love that. And so I've kept it. It's come from California to New York. They are workhorses. Yeah, yeah. I'm worried about them, though, sometimes, especially when you're making like a pavlova. You're putting it on for like almost 30 minutes sometimes, and you can hear it just like huffing and puffing. Okay, so 17, you do that. Then you go to UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. Why did you want to go to UC Berkeley? So it's very embarrassing, but I think all of my dreams were built when I was really young and thought everything was so accessible. And I watched Full House a lot growing up, and DJ Tanner went to UC Berkeley. And I was like, I too will go to UC Berkeley. But also they coincidentally have a great business program. And so I really wanted to do business and Luckily, I got in and I ended up also double majoring basically with media studies because I was already on that path. So why not? A lot of my life, I feel like I just can't say no if I've already started. So I'm going to just keep doing it. And so that's kind of how I ended up with two degrees. Let me go back a sec. Who is DJ Tanner for those who are like, oh. I don't know what she's talking about? Oh, my gosh. Oh, she is like the eldest daughter in Full House. So if you think of Mary Kay and Ashley, that's like their older sister. Got it. <laughs> I read that you worked for the Daily Clog. Yes, the Daily Californian was our newspaper, and then they had a blog. And so I really was used to blogging at that point. The Daily Clog is very cute. Yeah. I, it's not a blog about clogs. I yeah. think they're going to love the shout-out. <laughs> the, alu the alumni shout-out is a great thing for them. <laughs> what did you do for the Daily Clog? Oh, my gosh. I used to run the silliest stories sometimes. I would say if Gordo from Lizzie McGuire went to Berkeley, what would he be doing here? And the actor who plays him actually went to UC Berkeley. So there was a lot of that. I got away with doing some dessert related stuff. I'd be like, where are the top five places to go in Berkeley for a great gelato or some similar headlines like that? You seem to really love the food scene there. Yeah. Yeah. I really think it was a luxury to also live so close in proximity to the rest of the Bay Area because you're basically like a BART train away from everything you want to check out. And so Berkeley itself, though, is very famous. Chez Panisse is like a big rite of passage. If you ever get to go, then you've made it. But I was lucky to get to go at least twice in my time. You graduate, you wind up in New York City. I'll mm -hmm. leave out the part in the middle because I feel like people should discover that on their own yes, when yes. they read your book. And you do need to read it. It's more than a cookbook, as mm -hmm. we've discussed. Why did you come to New York? I really wanted just a big change. And I loved California. I think my first dream out of college was going to be with my friends in SF and like having adults job and doing that. But I think moving to New York was like kind of the move for me just because I think a lot of business, entertainment kind of opportunities, marketing opportunities were here. And that's how I ended up moving here was because I already had a job in place. But it was funny because that year of summer 2017, my parents were already planning like a reunion with my family here in Jersey. And instead of packing for just two weeks, we ended up using everyone's carry-ons for my clothes, for my stuff. And so I'm really grateful that like life just worked out somehow. How did we win out over L.A.? Honestly, I just don't like driving. <laughs> and so I'm really scared to drive. I can be honest about that because my boyfriend does schlep me around everywhere. And I also take the subway a lot. But I think because I haven't driven since I was basically 18, 
And also living in New York doesn't help because you're really not driving that often. I'm very afraid. And L.A. traffic would probably kill me. I don't think I could take it. I'm too weak for L.A., I think. Because I was thinking, I was like, why didn't you just go to L.A.? Because no. I bet your parents wanted you to stay oh, yeah. close. They're, no, they're very Just much knowing like about your parents from reading your book, I would imagine they wanted you as close as possible. Oh, yeah. They are already like, oh, are you tired of New York yet? And I'm always like, no. And they're always like, no. <laughs> you actually dedicate the book to your parents, yeah. obviously. And can you read this to me and tell oh, me yes. what this means in the inscription that you have there? I got it. To my parents, you told me, Bahalaka Sabuhai Mo, so I did. So Bahalaka Sabuhai Mo basically means do whatever with your life. And a lot of times the connotation is negative because it's like my parents or anyone's parents being like, okay, you're going to go out tonight. You're going to go to a party. Okay, do whatever with your life then. And so that's where that comes from. And I kind of wanted to co-opt that again. And a lot of people in my generation, I feel like, who are first gen children of immigrants, who really literally have to like twist those words and make them our own. And I think it's a good thing. And I, I don't think this is exactly what my parents expected for me to like write a cookbook and move to New York. But I'm really glad that life has panned out in a very fun, surreal way. Absolutely. Mm. So then the pandemic happens. Yes. You have to work from home. What happens in March of 2020? Oh, yeah. So I basically went full remote for my job. And every day I was worried because the live music industry was super impacted. It was awful. Like I thought like every day I thought I was going to lose my job. But that yeah. was worse than restaurants. I mean, restaurants had to close, mm -hmm. but people still had to eat. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. people didn't have to go to concerts. Yeah, yeah. So it was tough. And I really was like, you know, it, it is a joy kind of like working in my job just because I get to interact with so many parts of the industry. There's like artists, there's promoters, there's venues. But you could totally see that it was just like a domino effect of everyone's lives being like turned upside down. And so it was a sad time for sure. And I felt very depressed and spiraling. And I was turning 25 in April and I had the first Zoom birthday party. It was cursed. But yeah, it was not fun. It was not a good time. But you didn't get laid off. No, luckily, I'm still at this company. Thank God. And we made it through just with live streams. And I know a lot of people really went to the virtual space to kind of try to figure out a way to continue a community. And yeah, it, and we somehow we weathered the storm and it's busier than ever before at this point in time. But also the Dusky Kitchen was born. Yes. So before the pandemic started, I really was like my 2020 goal was to do my baking blog and really put it out there. And I think I really made it happen when I bought the domain. And when you buy domain, it's, it's over. Like you've committed. <laughs> and so I did that. And I actually started really blogging and posting recipes. I think it was August 2020. Now, you are the queen of the tiny kitchen. Yes. <laughs> Tell everybody what Dusky Kitchen means. Yeah. So Dusky, it was kind of a fun play on like before, again, pre-pandemic, I was commuting from work and I was working in Midtown Manhattan and I live in Bed-Stuy. The only time I could bake was right after work. And so around that time, it's always around dusk when the sun is setting. And I also only have one window in my kitchen and it's not ideal. And the gray walls are a really killjoy. <laughs> like I think the landlord special is the worst. So I really have tried to like make the best of the situation and just call it the Dusky Kitchen. And that's, I guess, some people would just, it's weird because you'll get like the spam emails or like, hi, Dusky. And it's like, that's not my name. <laughs> that's funny. Yes. So the Dusky Kitchen is mm -hmm. born. Also, Bakers Against Racism happened. Yeah. That inspired you also. During the whole Bakers Against Racism movement, you decided you were going to start making something to be part of this whole amazing thing that was happening. What did you start to make and where did you sell them? How did you get the word out? Yeah, yeah. So I was kind of inspired again by my own background. I was like, I want to do Filipino-American like fusion kind of desserts. 
I remember in the first box, there was like a strawberry pulveron. There was like a miso pork floss brownie. And then there was like horchata babinka. All right, um, we have to go back to miso <laughs> pork floss brownie. Yes, yes. There was like a miso caramel on top of like a you know standard brownie. That sounds so good. Yeah. It was kind of fun to like experiment. And this is what I always wanted to do. But the urgency of the time was something that really drove me to like actually do it and not be afraid. Because before this, I was only like giving my desserts really to coworkers, to friends, to boyfriends, to like roommates and all that. So it's a totally different ball game when you're feeding people you've never met and you're really nervous. I'm like, I really want them to like it and I don't want them to be scared. <laughs> but that they also have to pay for the baked goods. Yeah. Yeah. So I really was upfront about like, this is a pre-order form, a Google form. Pick it up at Fort Green Park or tell me because at the time it was very dicey. It was pre-vaccinations. My boyfriend was really nice to volunteer to drive certain boxes to like Brooklyn, Manhattan, Queens. And that radius is much bigger than I thought. So we were really going from like Sheepshead Bay to the Upper West Side. And I was like, my bad. I didn't realize directions like that. I do not drive. And so I'm really grateful from that time of being able to actually meet people in real life for the first time in a long time because of the pandemic. And tell us about the name of the treat boxes, because they're very specific. I called them Pasalumong treat boxes. So Pasalumong in Tagalog, basically, I always say short form word for it is souvenirs. But actually, like when you think about it, it's more of just a tradition when you're in like a Filipino family is really if you're going to go travel, you're going to buy little treats and desserts and candies and bring them back to friends and family as gifts because you want to give them a piece of your travels. And so that's kind of like the inspiration from my boxes is like in my head, I'm like traveling to these places and my kitchen is a portal to like everywhere else I've really missed. And yeah, that was how that name came to be. What were some of the organizations you were raising money mm -hmm. for? Initially, it was like Bed-Stuy Strong, which is my local mutual aid network in my neighborhood, and also Sun Chinatown Love. I know we definitely like donated to Sunnyside, Woodside, mutual aid. And even like at the time, there was a huge typhoon that hit the Philippines. Definitely Kids for Kids and For the Future were different organizations helping victims of the typhoon. It branched to a lot of things that I was just really passionate about. And luckily, I got to do like some collaboration boxes with people I admire. And so... I think it was just organic in the way that it started. And it was just like, oh, I really want to do this. And I'll try to bake at scale for the first time ever. And that was hard. And I never knew how to do that before. And so it's really tested my limits of baking. And I'm really glad because otherwise I would have just thought I could never do it if I never tried. You have such a unique baking style and you bring so much flair and fashion to your baked goods. I mean, you've really developed your own vocabulary when it comes to baked goods. How did that start to emerge? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's funny because I think that Filipino food that I know is just inherently pretty colorful, especially desserts. And I know people think first and foremost of ube, which is like the purple yam. But I just always kind of subconsciously maybe think about like the way that a recipe looks and is presented. And I'm really glad that during the cookbook shoot, my food stylist, Katie Wayne, who's amazing, she really understood that and she got edible flowers that I really wanted and like all these little touches that I think were super important to me, even though I know it doesn't always like make or break the recipe really if it had edible flowers or not. But it made me smile and it made me happy. And that's what I kind of want to do with these recipes was just I want to be happy when I look at them. I want other people to be happy looking at them, too, and making them hopefully. So you find an audience. You find an audience in two ways. You find an audience for your actual baked goods and you find an audience for the blog and mm -hmm. for your Instagram. Yes. And an agent got in touch with you. Yeah. Yeah. So just literally uh, innocuously posting on Twitter, you just like post, I made these cupcakes today. And they were like, Lao Gan Ma, like chili crisp cupcakes. 
And my agent, Emmy, actually reached out to me over Twitter. And these look so good. If you're ever thinking of writing a cookbook, let me know. And I was like, well, I didn't even think that was a possibility. So let me let you know right now. You know, at the time, maybe I wasn't even ready. But I was like, that's such a cool opportunity that I would never like you put the thought in my head. So now I got to do it. And they're so nice. And they're based in Toronto. I'm signed to Westwood Creative Artists. And Emmy is based in Toronto. So we've never met. And yet they also have gotten me a book deal. So I'm very grateful for them. So you never thought about having a cookbook? No, no. I never was really something that like crossed my mind. Even when I was like fantasy pitching to the Food Network for TV shows, I was more just, oh, that'd be me in like a little suit and little briefcase and go to the studio and do that. And those kinds of things, they don't really have like legs to them. They're just like ideas. And cookbooks, I think were, they're definitely born out of a bit more, I guess, like inspiration. And you have to really be committed to do it. And I guess I was committed at the time. And I still am. I'm in it. It's done. (laughs) Were you not a fan of cookbooks before? Were you not seeing cookbooks that you thought you could fit into? No, I, I, you know, it's interesting as an adult and with disposable income, like that definitely changed a lot of how I like approach cookbooks because my parents never really had cookbooks lying around. And they're very much of the camp of a little bit of this, like a touch of that that, until it tastes right. And I'm like, oh, God, that's really not helpful for me. Recently, in the past few years, I've been able to like grow my own cookbook collection and luckily buy a lot more like Filipino cookbooks, either from the Philippines or writers here in America. And it's such like a game changer to actually see more perspectives of Asian American, Korean American, Indian American perspectives that I really resonate with. And to be able to write a book that kind of fills this gap a little bit of Filipino American, not just the savory food, but dessert. I'm really excited because I don't think I've seen a book like it either. I think it's one of the motivations to write a book is you want to serve the community also that you're writing about. And for me, it doesn't escape me that it's a blessing to be Filipino and to write a story about your life instead of a lot of times, sometimes you see stories are like ghostwritten by like white people and people that aren't even of the community that they're writing about. So I'm really happy to do this for me and for my family, for my community and all that. It is nice to see Filipino cuisine, Filipino-American cuisine get its due finally. Mm -hmm. And we were talking earlier about some of the folks on the scene in addition to you. There's Nicole Ponseca, Mm -hmm. who had her beautiful restaurants in New York City and who was such a trailblazer. Yeah. Uh, Woldy. Woldy, yes, (laughs) I love Woldy. Pilar. Pilar Valdez Mm -hmm. from the Drew Barrymore Show. We love. She's been on this podcast and on our cover. Angela Demiuga. Yes. So many folks. Absolutely. And yeah, seeing Philippinex, um, like their cookbook was really one of the big inspirations aesthetically too, to like see my book now and be like, wow, that's, it's so beautiful, like next to it. I want to write this book, not just for me, but hopefully more people can write whatever they want in like the Filipino diaspora, because I think I really fought for this dessert book because some people were like, why do we need this? And like, why should we care? And people should care. And I think desserts, they shouldn't be slighted just because they're like the last course of the meal or whatever. But it's really a special thing that I think I have fond memories of and really foundational memories of. So I'm (laughs) pro-dessert. Well, we see almost every cookbook that comes out. I have to say when I flipped through this, I just was really struck by how special it is and how colorful and how it really reflects you so well congratulations. Thank you, Carrie. It means a lot to me, especially you've seen and read so many cookbooks. So I think you're an authority for sure to me. And we have a lot of cookbook collectors out there. And you know, I don't tell you to run out and buy every (laughs) single cookbook, but I really do think not only does Abby deserve everybody's support, but I do think it's important if you're a cookbook collector to have this book in your collection. Thank you, Carrie. Again, you coming out tomorrow. So 
pre-order the book or call your local bookstore, do whatever you have to do. Yes, please. Let's talk more about this gorgeous book. Yeah. Why the title? So for me, my parents are from a province in the Philippines called Pampanga, and they speak their own language there. So it's Kapampangan, and Mayumu means sweet in their language. And it's funny because a lot of even fellow Filipino Americans that have obviously seen my book, they're like, what does this even mean? And if they're not from there or their parents aren't from there, they wouldn't know. And so like in Tagalog, matamis means sweet. So just so like that clarifies a little bit. But I really wanted to do that as like an homage to them, even though my book is definitely me more so than my parents' perspective, maybe on traditional Filipino food. So it's definitely the opposite for me. But I still think I wanted to honor them that way. I'm going to ask you a few questions about some of the recipes in this book, because the recipes are fantastic. Mm -hmm. First, I'd love to know, what is a great gateway recipe? Yeah, so there's one recipe in the very first chapter of the book. There's like jam, syrups, and toppings. And I think everyone should know how to make the ube halia three ways. And not necessarily you have to do all three ways, especially in the case where if you're looking for that jam in the store, which a lot of people are baking with now, it can be really expensive slash it's hard to find if you're not at like a Filipino or Southeast Asian grocery store to be able to make it either from the frozen ube or also from powdered ube. And also there's like a fun quirky one that's made out of ube pillow crackers. Um, and so I really wanted to show the diversity of how you can go about making it. And it's like a pretty foundational recipe for some of the other recipes in the book where it's like a filling or, you know, part of like a cookie dough. So I really like this as a gateway recipe. And for folks who've never cooked with that or experimented with it, it's a purple yam. Yeah. Purple yam jam, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it's even on the cover. Yeah. I mean, basically, it's on the cover. So I know like the secret's out that I did not make that ice cream in the cover is that store-bought ice cream. But again, I really talk about it in the book, too, to like not be ashamed of also sometimes getting something store-bought. It's my favorite Filipino brand, which is Magnolia. It's my go-to ice cream for any Filipino flavor. So they definitely hopefully used ube halia in it. It's definitely ube, Yum. for sure. On there. <laughs> okay, so that's your gateway. Which recipe would you say is the most you? The most me, I want to say... I know it's the cover, so it's a little like a little redundant, but like I, the Hala Hala Baked Alaska for sure is definitely me. It's very ambitious and it's really extra because it's definitely the lengthiest recipe in the book because there's so many components. So I didn't want to make everyone like make the ice cream. So that is store bought. But the meringue on the top, the coconut sponge as the base, there's like a evaporated milk granita that is infused with jackfruit. And so there's also the Hala Hala toppings that are traditionally a Hala Hala is a shaved dessert. That's very emblematic of Filipino cuisine. It means, literally means mix, mix. And so it's just usually shaved ice and then evaporated milk and all the components I was just talking about, basically, just served together and you eat with a spoon on a hot day. And so that recipe really was like something that I thought was like the showstopper of the book, but also something I hope that people can have a new take on Hala Hala. And I love it. It has like flowers and like in the recipe section, it's like in full without it being cut open. And I had little cute toothpicks that had Filipino flags on them. So I put one on top. But yeah, this was definitely something that I envisioned from the start of writing the book. And I love it so much. It's my favorite thing. In it's the a great book. cover. It's so <laughs> eye-catching. You. Which recipe do you think will be the most popular? I think it has to be, I hope, because I really love this recipe too, it's the adobo chocolate chip cookies. Everyone needs a chocolate chip cookie recipe if you're doing like any kind of dessert cookbook sometimes. This was inspired by a savory Filipino dish, adobo, which most people know is soy sauce and vinegar stewed chicken or other protein. The salt in the cookie is soy. The butter is infused with bay leaf. So I would never forget bay leaf and adobo. And then also there's pink peppercorns on top. Adobo is known for like black peppercorns, which are a little like intense. So I wanted pink peppercorns, not just for their color, but like the fruity notes of it to play with the dark chocolate. 
So I love that recipe. It is very much emblematic of me. Also, like the American background, Filipino background, all of it into one cohesive recipe. I loved how in this you blend a lot of different cuisines and cultures. I loved the Filipino flag cookies because they're obviously a nod to the New York black and white cookies. Yeah. Tell us about that recipe. Yeah, I love that recipe. It's very beautiful. I love the colors. It's inspired by the black and white, but it's like red, blue, yellow and white. The colors of the Filipino flag and the flavor is not chocolate. It's a hint of jasmine extract. And so jasmine is one of basically the national flower of the Philippines, which is actually Sampaguita, which is a family of jasmine. But I think it just is emblematic of my experience. Obviously, living in New York, I go to every deli and there's a black and white cookie and I love them. I know they're like more like cake. Don't know why they're called cookies. I visually just love how much they like marry both sides of my life into one recipe. And I love, okay, my also shout out again to my food stylist, Katie Wayne, who put the cutest edible flowers. I think they're actually jasmine on the actual cookies. So she really got the vision and I adore that recipe. It sounds like you two had a really nice working relationship. Yeah, I was really nervous because I think this was the first time I truly was like, okay, passing on the reins to someone be like, okay, you can, I guess, like figure out the schedule and all this stuff and trust. But Katie is such a professional. She has done countless amounts of like work for literally all the publications. And so she's truly professional. And I'm also, again, coming from a self-taught background, I'm so nervous about people who have gone and done pastry school. And so her and also Joy Cho, who was her assistant food stylist, they were amazing in the kitchen. I like baked alongside them to finish the recipes because it is a challenge. You all hands on deck to finish 10 recipes a day. A cookbook takes a village. Yeah. Who was your photographer? Uh, Nico Shinko. Yes. And he's amazing. Highly recommend his work as well. But yeah, he was so gracious because when you're doing the shoot, like you have all these, again, boards, you have every single like cake stand on like a giant, giant table. And I was like, I truly don't have that kind of space sharing my apartment with like my roommates. And so he was so nice. His apartment, he basically opened up and he lives with his fiance. I was like, I'm so sorry. There were literally cake stands in his bedroom. I felt awful. I hate to be like a hindrance to anybody. But no, he was so nice. And like to see like the V flap, which is basically you see all the pictures like printed out. It was surreal. I think it's like one of those things that outside of holding the book, it's like pictures make it feel so real. Even if they weren't edited, they just look so good. And everyone is a professional. So I'm really glad I got to work with him. Can you walk me through your babinka recipe? Yeah. yeah. I love babinka. Oh, you love it? Oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. So basically, like you have to start with I like to cut up the banana leaf squares. So banana leaf is like what it, these cakes are baked in. And it really imparts like a nice floral. I don't even know. Like it's, it has a flavor to it. So you can't miss it. So it's a little bit different than using standard cake, cupcake liners. The actual rice cake recipe is a single bowl mixed kind of situation. So you don't need a KitchenAid mixer for it. And so it's coconut milk, both types of rice flour, glutinous rice flour, regular rice flour for a combination of a chewy bite and then a little hint of cinnamon. And then so that gets baked into the banana leaf lined cupcake tins. And then on top is an actual horchata glaze. So I, you make horchata the night before and then you cook it down and then you like combine it with a little bit more of like sometimes if you need a little splash more of the horchata, you can put that on as sugar and then you put on toasted coconut flakes. And so it is definitely like a sweeter um, babinka than I think traditional babinka has like a salted duck egg and also cheese on top. But I love how horchata already has rice in it. So it, it makes sense to me to use a coconut babinka horchata kind of combination. So I I love that recipe a lot, and I make it often. I can't wait to make it. You have such a fun section in the beginning. 
You titled it Tiny Kitchen Essentials, and it is such a delightful read. Oh. Tell us about the pantry section. Yeah. And so I developed the whole book in my tiny Bed-Stuy Brooklyn apartment kitchen. I share the apartment with three, at the time, three other roommates. And so, like, I really wanted to tell readers that I, too, am struggling out here. And these recipes can be done somehow in your kitchen. So I definitely have tips about how to share your space and how to maximize your space. But I really want to include, like, a big Filipino pantry essential section because there are certain recipes that are very reliant on different extracts and jams that you can have store-bought. But I also was really proud of the section because my good friend from UC Berkeley, Sharice Celestial, is the illustrator for my book as well. I tapped her to do a beautiful spread for this and Carrie's looking at it right now. But it's like all the like the little pantry essentials that I love. And she painstakingly drew all that. And I think it goes beautifully with the section. I love the beginning. I think it's a great start to the book. It really is. I mean, this whole book is so joyous, but it's just really, really fun. And mm-hmm. I just love the little section you have, like sharing baked goods is caring, patience is underrated. Yeah. And this is a good one, cutting cake into slices. I am always personally nervous whenever a cake is not cut yet. And I'm like, uh, and I want the cake really badly and no one is touching it. So I think it's like off limits for some reason. So I will not touch the cake. Whenever I see something like already pre-cut at a party and it's already there for you, I'm always like, oh, it is open to public. I guess we can have a little taste. And so I really try to like, if I have things out, I'll put a post-it note to like, these are okay to eat. These are not for a photo shoot. These are not for anything. You can have them. But I do love having it pre-cut so people don't be afraid. And also, I think the scariest part is the last slice. I think everyone's a little embarrassed to take it. But I hope some people have less shame about that because it it sucks when it's the last slice is left and it's wasted. So, yeah, hopefully people will eat more of your goods by cutting it up for them in portions. Have you gotten better at recipe developing? From this book, 100%. I think it was definitely a different endeavor. My blog was more like... I was definitely ripping off of pre-existing recipes for the most part. And to actually like write things from scratch, I was definitely, especially not having a professional pastry background. I think my struggle was that I was coming at it from also imposter syndrome, also fear, even though I was baking since I was 13. The science of baking is also some, sometimes really intimidating for a lot of people to get into baking. Even to the best of us, we have bad days. The kitchen is not cooperating. Something goes wrong. And that happened a lot during development of 75 recipes. After trial and error, it's throwing darts at a board. And if it finally lands in the center, then it's good. And you learn next time that whatever it was happening before was not the right, like, you know, our movement. So that was kind of like the metaphor for baking for me. It was like, well, this now I know the hard way that this is not working out. This is how I should be doing it. And it's funny, the first food photo shoot I've ever done was my cookbook shoot. And it was a six-day shoot, which was super, super grueling. It was like 60 recipes, 10 recipes a day on average. And my team was amazing. But I truly never had like, a huge photo shoot before for food at all. So it was a big learning experience. And even after the fact, getting to go on actual food shoots for smaller things like an article or like a piece or a story, it was not like super easy, but it was definitely easier than when I first started with my cookbook, for sure. How did working on this book change you? I feel more confident, for sure, as like a person. And I think in your 20s, I'm currently in the latter stage of it. I think a huge focus for me was always like, well, what am I doing with my life? Am I doing it right? Am I supposed to be doing this? Am I supposed to be doing that? And I still ask these questions like every day. To write a book was something that wasn't even on my radar when I was 23. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, I'm allowing myself to be open to new things, different opportunities, the things I would never have thought of possible before and meeting new people. And for the time before the pandemic, I thought I was like stuck in a rut of like all my friends are 
the only friends I'm going to ever have at this point from college, from work, that's it. <laughs> and it's like, no, like there's so many people to meet and so many people to like connect with. And through baking, I've done that. And it's really exciting. So I am very happy about the outcome of this book, at least for me now. It's not over. And then you write a book and it's on a shelf forever and ever. But your relationship with it will change. And I'm kind of excited to see how I look at this when I'm 37 and not 27. And I hope I still like love it in the same way and or maybe more ways than one. I'm happy that you're part of this beautiful food community that we have here in New York City. It's great. And New York is like, I think, the biggest piece of my success, I feel like, because everyone is so accessible. I'm literally sitting with you right now, Carrie, because of the Internet, I feel like. And sometimes growing up, my parents would be like, be a be a little nervous about, you know, like, don't talk to strangers. And like, you know, obviously, like, you know, you've got to be a little careful. But like, I think that overall, meeting people who are similarly passionate about food, like it comes from a good place. And that's why I always feel very trusting with people. And I hope that even after this book is over, this this run, whatever, it's not actually over. It's just a new stage of just promotion and being able to see people make the recipes, which I, I it's so insular in the beginning of making the book that I'm just amazed, like seeing people hold it even and not even make anything yet. It's so exciting. Everything is so new and so bright right now. How involved were you in the design of the book? I'm really lucky because my publisher, Harvest, the team there is so trusting of me. And I did not know what I was doing, to be honest. Like when I like when they're asking you all these things, you had your proposal ready and all this stuff. When it came time to it to actually do the design, which is actually the most fun part, I feel like they asked me, like, what kind of style are you looking for? What colors do you like? And so they really were attuned to me. And like, obviously, we're talking about how much I love color. And so they were always 100% asking me, is this good? Is this good? We talked about the font, the typeface of the cover incessantly. Like I was always like, "Mm, it has to be funkier. It has to be like a little extra. And they get it. They got it. They definitely did. It took a little trial and error, but everyone was very on board with kind of like the vision I had. So I'm really happy that everyone trusted me enough to do it because I think that's not everyone's experience of writing a cookbook. Who are some folks you admire in the industry? Oh my God, there's so many people I admire. I feel like the one of the trailblazers for especially this genre, Priya Krishna, Indianish, was like a huge inspiration for me. And she is so kind and supportive online. And I really appreciate her. I also feel like Samin knows that. Like I, I too, am like from the Bay Area. And so I, everyone I know adores Samin. It's hard to say how much impact she's done for like the community of food lovers. She's done so much. Oh my gosh, um, salt, fat, acid, heat. It's yeah, just like yeah. a Bible now. It was definitely on the mood board, salt, fat, acid, <laughs> Like, I kind of want this vibe for, like, ingredients and all that stuff. And, yeah, I just, I, there's so many more. I mean, even in Filipino food space, I feel like my friend and food writer, eater, Bettina Makalintal, is also one of my favorite people and was always kind of just, like, open to helping me with this book, with writing a blurb for my book, too. So I'm very grateful for her and her amazing expertise on, like, Filipino food and food in general, just, like, talking about it. She's so well-versed. And also, I really love Deb from Spinning Kitchen. Definitely one of the trailblazers of the people I admired from the blog space. So she really taught me a lot of how to bake, actually, just reading her blog. So folks are listening to this and they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm drooling. I can't wait to get the cookbook. But they ask, how can I get Abby's desserts in person? Are you doing any pop-ups connected to the book? I actually, first of all, have an event the day of the launch tomorrow at You and Me Books. It starts at 5.30 and until 7. So please come and get your book signed. Are you selling tickets in advance? No. So it's free. Anyone can come in. But also the actual pop-up. I have one Sunday, March 5th at Orchestratus Bookstore in Greenpoint. So I am from Brooklyn. I'm excited to do a Brooklyn event. 
And that's where I'll actually be selling desserts and donating proceeds to the HarperCollins Strike Fund. And we're hoping that you'll be a Jubilee. Oh, I would love that. Signing yes. some books. So stay tuned about that. For folks who live in the New York area, what's your go-to for Filipino ingredients? Oh, there's specifically one place, Johnny Airmart in the East Village. And it's basically, they also have prepared food. So if you're craving like fried fish, if you're craving like your own little bit of taron, which is banana and jackfruit wrapped in like a lumpia wrapper and fried, you can get it there. And also a lot of the ingredients that are in the pantry essentials in my book, you can also get them there without trekking to Queens, which can be hard depending if you don't live near Queens or on a train accessible. So I love going there. Do you have a favorite place in Queens? Since you are the subway gal. Oh, no, I do love the subway. Okay, I am pro subway. I was just in Elmhurst and there was like a whole block of Filipino restaurants. And I was really, really amazed because, again, I've lived here for six years, but every day I'm like discovering something new about the city. And there's one place was Capet and Torta, basically was the name of it. And had great sponge cakes, mamon, which is what they're called. And the best hala hala I've had, which I was like in the city, which Whoa, I was like. That's, <laughs> stop. Tell us again where to go, because that's a big statement. Yeah. Yeah. It's Capet Torta, I think is the name of it. It was just like a quintessential like hollow hollow with like really yummy ice cream and all the layers of like bean, red bean and like um, not de coco, the jellies. It was just good. And I think it's hard to come by sometimes when you're just really craving like really my book is not traditional whatsoever. But sometimes you are craving like the things that you had growing up exactly the way that they were. So I do appreciate that about especially all the restaurants in Elmhurst, but that one is in particular. Okay, Abby, speed round time. Okay. One of your favorite books on food. I want to say Taste of Control. But, I don't know. I don't know that book. What is uh, that? Basically, it's about like the influence of like uh, American uh, occupation in the Philippines on food and society. And I, the author, I think, is Renee Deroquisa. But it's an incredible book. And I think it should be taught in like history classes because there is so much of an influence. Again, of just like if you think about the prevalence of spam and like different canned products in countries like the Philippines and even Hawaii. It is in large part because of like military occupation and society. Like those kinds of things are very real and need to be talked about. What is your favorite food movie? I love Matilda. I was just thinking about the chocolate cake because I had an amazing chocolate cake in Key West and I love that movie. Favorite kitchen tool? Oh, okay. The KitchenAid mixer. I feel like I talked about it enough. It has to be. Since you work in music, who's an artist we should all be listening to right now? You should all be listening to... Be a Badoobie if you aren't already. She's a great, like, Filipino indie artist. One thing that's always in your fridge. I always have bagoong, which is like a fermented shrimp condiment. Favorite childhood food. I love those strawberry shortcake bars, the frozen ones. I also buy them to this day. Oh, the good humor ones? <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, I love those. Snack food of choice. Oh, I also love Gushers. <laughs> I know I have the palate of like a seven-year-old, but they really I do get them occasionally. I put them in the fridge and I eat them cold, which is weird, but I love them. <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs> Footwear of choice in the kitchen. Oh, um, I... Barefoot? I, wear, I mean, you're, you're at home. That's true. When I'm at home, I do go barefoot a bit more. But if I'm like working in like a kitchen clog or like clogs or also more specifically, I feel like I go for Crocs a lot. Any motto or mantra you live by? I think, okay, this is from the dedication, but I would say, Bahalika mo. So do whatever with your life. And I mean that earnestly. <laughs> if you were to be stuck on a desert island with one food celebrity, who would it be and why? Oh my God. I would have really a lot of fun with Guy Fieri for the most part because we could bleach each other's hair and we would be fine. 
You know what is so funny? I knew you were going to say Guy Fieri. Really? I don't know how, but I, after asking that question to so many people over the years, like I can usually guess who they're going to say. I know. I really love him. And he's also from California. So I always like have a soft spot for Guy. And we watch him all the time for Dodgers Drive-Ins and Dives. I feel like the guy has done so much for the food world. You no. know, he loves the mom and pop places. Yeah. And those are my favorite places, mm-hmm. too. So I, I love all aspects of food, but he's great. Oh, well, Abby, you are great, too. Congratulations on this gorgeous book. Like I said, I hope everybody runs out and gets it. I can't wait to cook from it and bake from it. And you're a treasure. Will you ever have a bakery one day? I never say never. So I really hope maybe one day. Who knows? Okay. Okay. Well, fingers crossed. But in the meantime, you told us ways people can get your food. It was great to see you. I'm really glad to be here. And I thank you so much, Carrie, again for your time. And it's just, I don't know, it's such a joy to talk about it. I felt like I was keeping a secret for so long. But now it's real and it's here. So thank you for the opportunity to spread the word about it. Oh, well, Abby, you're the bomb. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed today's episode, I would love for you to subscribe to our podcast. If you're already a subscriber to Radio Cherry Bomb, leave us a rating and review. Let me know about a potential topic or guest you'd like featured on a future show. Also, sign up for the Cherry Bomb newsletter over at cherrybomb.com so you can stay on top of all Cherry Bomb happenings podcast episodes, and events. Radio Cherry Bomb is a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Our theme song is by the band Cha La La. Thank you to Joseph Hazen, studio engineer for Newsstand Studios. Our producer is Catherine Baker, and our associate producer is Jenna Sadu. And thanks to you for listening. You're the bomb. <laughs>